Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Welcome back to part two in our two-part series on frozen shoulder. Today, Professor Jeremy Lewis is back and he's sharing the best and the latest evidence for what works and what doesn't work when it comes to treating the painful and or stiff shoulder. Now, if you haven't heard part one in this series, I strongly recommend you jump back in your feed a week and take a listen. Part one's a really good grounding in how you might approach assessing the painful and or stiff shoulder and how you might best support patients to make decisions about how to manage frozen shoulder. Okay, let's dive into part two. Let's move on to treatment because I think there's a whole bunch of different approaches in that we might think about for treatment and I'm keen to get the kind of lowdown on where we are with the evidence and one of the biggest challenges here, like many areas of musculoskeletal rehabilitation, is that we're not unfortunately blessed with a ton of great quality or top quality research evidence to help guide us. So let's talk a little bit about the treatments, common treatments and um, the evidence for or against them. So I'm going to start with stretching. What do we know about stretching and its value as a treatment for frozen shoulder? There's certainly no evidence that I can see that exercise manual therapy stretches has a substantial or any place to play in the pain stage where pain dominates. Manual therapy, uh, stretching and exercises would have a place to play in the stiff phase. Now, you're not allowed, and we should have signed a contract beforehand to ask me about mechanisms. There is some evidence that stretching in the stiff phase does improve some impairment measurements and some patient reported outcome measurements, you know, patient functional outcome measures as well. We're, we're not blessed with studies that also have non-intervention, placebo or, or true control groups. So we don't know if patients, the people with suffering frozen shoulders, while nature's just taking its course. I, I can't speak to that because we just don't have that data. But I would avoid exercising, stretching, manual therapy in the pain stage, but absolutely included in, in the stiff phase. Shared decision-making discussion with patients, presenting sort of what the time it's going to take, how long it will take, expected outcomes. Manual therapy is a pretty broad term, as we know. So are we talking about joint mobilising? What sorts of manual therapy approaches? Okay, this is a, a hot potato topic, isn't it? Certainly, you know, manual therapy, as it was initially presented, is probably with a, you know, with the, with the benefit of incredible number of people who've contributed enormously with research. It's it's probably not the same philosophy today. And and I, we know, for example, that when we're doing something that I guess might in the past have been called an inferior mobilization of the glenohumeral joint. The, the theory presented was we were stretching the inferior or posterior inferior capsule. Now, most physiotherapists, when they mobilize the shoulder, uh, wouldn't be applying more than about 20 kilograms of force to the shoulder. And even if we've got someone who's a superhuman and can push it 200 kilos, it's still probably not enough force to stretch the capsule, it seems to require about 683 kilograms of force per centimetre squared to, to actually stretch the capsule. And so it would be naive of us to believe that manual therapy would be able to stretch the capsule. But 
the research would say if you use it as a clinical procedure, there is some potential benefit with it. And so therefore we have to start thinking or hypothesizing why or thinking of other mechanisms why it might be working. And there was some a really fabulous study, a case series, small case series published by Louise Holman, where they took people with a clinical diagnosis of frozen shoulders and assessed their active and passive movement. And then in an operating theater, they were given a general anesthetic without any other procedure. And lo and behold, uh, some people regained full range of movement and everybody regained some movement, which suggests that in some people who've been diagnosed with a frozen shoulder, they actually might have a muscle guarding, if that's an appropriate term, to maybe for some reason that it's muscle stiffness, muscle guarding that's protecting their shoulder from the, the experiencing more pain. And, and so maybe when we stretch and we exercise and we do uh, manual therapy, touching therapy, whatever you would like to call it, it may be not stretching joint tissue because maybe the physiologically that's not possible, but maybe it's having some impact on, on muscle guarding. How much of what's going on is actually muscle guarding? Yeah, that's really interesting. And I noticed you broke your contract. Lucky we didn't get you to sign a contract about hypothesizing about mechanisms. And I'm really glad you did because that was very interesting. Thanks, Jeremy. Now, I'm going to go to injections and come back to exercise. But my the link to injections, I think, here is that this idea of stretching the capsule or breaking adhesions. And, and certainly in my training, it was the injection is about sort of dilating that joint capsule. So let's talk a little bit about what we know about injections for frozen shoulder, please. More recent reviews would suggest that that injections into the glenohumeral joint is probably the best treatment we can have, suggest in the early stage, the painful stage of the condition. But patients need to be aware of the risks. They're not, people have to weigh up the potential benefits, the anticipated benefits against the possible harms. And certainly that would be the most, of all the non-invasive or non-surgical interventions, that would be the one that would be probably the, the most likely to make a difference if it's done early enough. And what are you injecting? So steroid and an analgesic. And what we're starting to see, and there are some potential, starting to understand sort of more about a potential cytokine storm happening in the shoulder that is affecting not just the glenohumeral joint, but also the bursa with very high concentrations of TNF-alpha, tumor crossing factor alpha, interleukin-6, et cetera, uh, one beta. So cytokines that are associated with inflammation, there seems to be very high concentrations in the bursa and in the capsule. And, And certainly... Some research we're doing at the moment and other people's reports as well would suggest that the glenohumeral joint is the most important place to inject, followed by an intrabursal injection at the same time. Is this in the early painful stage? So this is something you would early consider as possible, for painful. Once you've established, you've waited your month, you're as, you're as good as you can get to say it's likely you've got a frozen shoulder. This is what we know about natural history. This is what we know about other interventions. These are the these are potential harms. What do you think is right for you? For the patient who says injection therapy is something I'm prepared to try, understand the risks, then it needs to be done as early as possible. The more you delay, the less likely it's going to be beneficial. And cytokine storm that's happening may 
uh, stimulate proliferation of, of fibroblasts, especially fibroblasts called myofibroblasts. And myofibroblasts in the capsule, the shoulder joint, and in the coracohumeral ligament, which is the ligament that would be typically held responsible for losing external rotation, myofibroblasts increase will cause the contraction of those tissues. And maybe the reason why the injections at the moment are the best treatment we can offer is that it's actually stopping the myofibroblast from causing the contraction in people who've got a true frozen shoulder. So sort of the hypothesis I work on is I don't often see people get complete recovery if we look at range of movement. Patients often report complete recovery, but I don't see full range of movement recovered. I wonder if that's because the con- partly the contraction's already taken place. And personally, I don't see any benefit injecting in the stiff phase. Small injections of uh, steroid combined with lidocaine into the joint and into the bursa. But that's what I do in the first stage if the patient understands. That's really, really interesting. And I think we're getting now this picture of the early painful phase. There's a particular direction you might think about headed, as you say, with shared decision-making and, and, you know, a careful discussion there. And then later on, once it gets to that more stiff phase but less pain, there's sort of a different approach that's much more around the um, exercise stretching manual therapy. So let's come back to this. Let's come back to the exercise side of things. And, and my suspicion is that you are combining a program so you're not doing stretching in isolation and that's it or you're not doing joint mobilizations in isolation and that's it you're combining uh, you know what some people refer to as a multimodal program where you've also got some exercise active exercise in there so let's talk about the evidence for active exercise and what types of things you might include in in a program like that jeremy uh, just just wanted to say one more thing about the injections. It would be really good if someone could put together a study looking at sort of something like anti-TNF-alpha to see if that makes a difference. We need more research on that because maybe what, you know, it's, there's a lot of, there's so many uncertainties about this. Um, but coming back to the exercise, there's also huge uncertainties about that. There's a, only really about three or four studies that we can look at with any confidence at all, and they're all associated with some bias, there was no consistency in the approach to exercise manual therapy or stretching. It does seem that you need, the studies were sort of suggesting that people need to do about 30 minutes a day of a combined treatment. And one study was suggesting even two 30-minute blocks a day. And I just don't know how many people could build that into their busy lifestyles. So certainly when I talk about it with, with patients, with people who are seeking care, we talk about how could we use time when they're traveling on a train or watching television or listening to music or talking to their partner in the evening? You know, what could they use to distract or, or use other time productively for that? Um, the exercises, interestingly, when you when you read people's RCTs and like as you know, that not always people report their exercise programs as succinctly and as like, as, as clearly as they should. And, and so it's sometimes difficult to know exactly what went on. But when you correspond with the authors and, and you, or you do try and piece it out a little bit, it seems to be not much different than a, a program you might give for someone uh, post-fracture or post, uh, post-surgery or for a rotator cuff-related problem, which I think, you know, there's, there's more overlap in our exercises programs. Not one exercise program has demonstrated superiority. 
So I just think any graduates, so find a safe starting point and, and get the patient to, to build up with that, with a combination of isometric exercises, eccentric exercises. I often exercise the contralateral side, trying to utilize the research that suggests eccentric programs may have some benefit on pain reduction and improvement in movement on the symptomatic side and then graduate that to eccentric concentric and heavy slow resistance exercises. We've also got some studies at the moment looking at the use of virtual reality. Can that trick the brain a little bit in people with um, with muscle guarding when they exercise the contralateral side but see the, the, the symptomatic side moving, which we're trying to learn if there's some benefit in that or using the the distraction that virtual reality provides so that people aren't thinking this is sore, this is sore, this is sore. I would say any graduated exercise is beneficial. And I always proceed it by saying to the patient, based on what you've told me, based on the assessment, that it's it's impossible for you to damage your shoulder with an exercise. And I know the pain's horrible, but um, and if it's tolerable and it's not carrying over to the night and to tomorrow, see if you can try and do get a little bit of movement. And, and nature also is on the side of people with frozen shoulders, but it takes a long time. And the truth is there's no evidence that people fully recover. Uh, so we have to be also be very careful about you know, telling people in a year you're going to be better because there's no evidence for that statement. I'm hearing a few different key messages here. One is that there's a lot of interesting work going on now, so hopefully some new things coming along in the not-too-distant future, some great work on the horizon. The good news is strengthening and in whatever, you know, in however you choose to design that program, strengthening is a really great choice in an exercise program. And I know Laurie Mishner will love that because we've had a similar, she and I have had a similar chat on the podcast about strength, the value of strength training for the shoulder. And, and I think you and Laurie share a very similar approach to treating shoulder pain. Well, I've learned a lot from Laurie over the years. And, and, and whether it's actually true definition of strength and hypertrophy or it's muscle performance or it's movement and, and what is it actually doing, again, mechanisms are so interesting but so far away from us. But whether it's actual improvement in strength, I'm not sure. But whatever you want to call it, muscle performance exercises, whatever you want to call it, movement enhancement, certainly movement, there is a place for it. Now, before we move off this idea of treatment, I, I just want to come back to the painful phase and we talked about injections and I'm wondering whether it's an injection and done, no other treatment, let the patient go off and do their own thing for a while or is there also some other component of exercise therapy or something else that you're building into a treatment program alongside that intervention, uh, that injection intervention? Some people, I think, are just doing injections and then saying, off you go, just keep moving your shoulder. The approach that we've taken is sort of looking at some of the systematic reviews that have been published that would suggest that the injections need to be followed with a home exercise program. As soon as the patients had their injections, they've already been taught an exercise program on their contralateral side, which they'll be continuing doing, but will start a home exercise program, which is critical on their symptomatic side. I know we don't have the perfect treatment for frozen shoulder, but I don't think that um, it's adequate just to do an injection and, and let the patient to their own devices. You need to give them, I believe, some framework if they're prepared to, to, to work, if they've got the capacity in their lifestyle 
if they've got time in their lifestyle to, 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 to work towards that. But I would strongly suggest that for those listening to this uh, and find this of any value, that working together with radiology colleagues, uh, orthopedic surgeons, set up frozen shoulder one-stop shops because it is, it is the sciatica of the shoulder. For anyone who's had sciatica, it is the most unbearable, frustrating, worrying time. And frozen shoulders are the same. The, the, you know, when you ask the patient with frozen shoulder, you know, what's it like living with this? You know, people are, are frustrated and, you know, they express how their family doesn't understand why they're doing things so slowly and they can't be that same person in their family environment and their work colleagues are frustrated with them and, you know, making in comments and you haven't had a fracture, you haven't had surgery, you know, why can't you do your job? It's, it's such a frustrating condition. So if you can set up a one-stop shop and speak with the same voice, because that's, again, from the qualitative research, the frustration that patients are expressing about Google said this and the physiotherapist said this and the doctor said this and the GP said this and the neighbour said this, they're just in this absolute paralysed state of what do I do? So if you can set up a one-stop shop where patients come in and everyone's speaking with the same voice, they get their clinical assessment, their imaging if required, whatever intervention, the shared decision-making, whatever interventions are necessary, um, I think you'll find that that will really serve the communities that you're serving in a, in a very, very meaningful, positive way. And it's certainly been one of the best things I've done. As we wrap up this session on this section on treatment, I think it would re be remiss if we didn't speak briefly about surgery for frozen shoulder. So what do we know about the evidence for surgery? For those who would like to follow that up, excellent question up in a bit more detail, just go to the Lancet Medical Journal and um, download, it's open access, the, the UK FROST trial. It was published um, at the end of 2020. It was a comparison, a, a randomised controlled trial that compared manipulation under anaesthetic to capsule release to steroid injection with a home exercise program. And, and no intervention was superior to any of the others. So at one year, they all had the same outcomes. And, and so when we do our shared decision-making, we talk about that. We talk about the trial with an infographic. Of course, it's the, the patient then to decide what's right for them at this point in time. What was really interesting, and when I went through physiotherapy school in Australia and all the postgraduate training I've done and all the conferences I've been to and lectures I've listened to from surgeons, I was always led to understand that the capture release was the more sophisticated, less damaging intervention, but the, the UK FROST trial suggested that actually the manipulation under anaesthetic was, when we're just talking comparing surgery, was more preferential in terms of outcome, which was, a, I think, a challenge to a lot of surgeons' opinions. And certainly, you know, my knowledge was really imparted to me from surgical, listening to surgeons talking. So that was a big challenge that none of the, none of the techniques had a, a better outcome uh, than the other. They all, again, we, there was no control group. So we, again, just watching natural history is a big important question. If you're a patient going to speak to a surgeon, certainly go armed with that question. Should I be considering manipulation and anesthetic or capture release? What are the risks? What are the benefits? And look at the lay summary of the of that particular trial and, and physiotherapists could direct patients to that. If someone gave me the permission to say, what would you do? 
I would certainly suggest that uh, once you understand the, the potential harms of an injection, consider that. Um, and if that's not ticking the, the outcome boxes that you wanted in, in, a, in a month or two months, then, then, then absolutely then consider surgery. Now, Jeremy, I'm going to wrap us up here. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much for the opportunity and I'm wishing you and all the listeners the best for 2022. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Bye.